Hey, it's Tim Baker, host of the Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Alon Block, the founder and CEO of K-Health. When Alon and I first spoke a few weeks ago, my understanding of the business was admittedly a bit of it. I knew they were a telehealth organization with one of the lowest price points in the industry, but I wasn't really sure how they were able to achieve this. After the episode, I'm personally now an avid user of K-Health because of how much I love the platform Symptom Checker, which allows me to interact with an intuitive AI chatbot to see what other patients like me were diagnosed with. While this technological innovation is certainly a focus of the episode, it was also a pleasure getting to know Alon, who is the veteran founder of three successful companies and is able to see solutions where others see problems. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Alon. Welcome. We're so happy to have you. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, just to get started, it's somewhat of an icebreaker. I uh, would love to know what you wanted to be when you grow up. I wasn't ready for that question. Uh, I thought I wanted to be probably a scientist, probably in either biology or chemistry. And that's what I studied in my undergrad. But I really actually had no plans, no kind of vocational job. I didn't want to follow my dad's footsteps or anything like that. And I had no clue. And what did your dad do? He was in real estate. And but look, when I was a kid, I thought most office jobs were really, really boring. So, you know, just like people and they're typing. And, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, people still smoked cigarettes in offices. It was just like, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. So I wanted to be either in a lab or outside, you know, so. That makes sense. So it, it, it's interesting. So you studied biology and chemistry. And yet you joined McKinsey, then you joined as co-CEO of Wix, which is an internet development company. And then you founded Vroom, which is sort of an online car retailer. Retailer. So what led you to found those? And now sort of what led you to found KLF as the third of these uh, ventures? Like I, I get asked a lot about that. And I think um, there's a nice retrospective narrative that I, I can give. Give, give me the retrospective and the honest. How about that? <laughs> I think part of it is my general interests, my curiosity, the stuff excited about and want to do. That evolves during the thing called life and people, you know, I find different interests, circumstances change. I grow up, I have three kids as well. So, you know, it's, it's all, all these different things. So I'm interested in different things um, that I was 10 or 20 years ago. But I think it's also a matter of just personal interests. I tend to kind of when I get excited about something and commit to doing it, I kind of jump in headfirst. I'm completely obsessed about it. I'm 24-7. I'm super curious. And part of the fun is learning a new, a new industry, a new way of doing things because there's new technologies, there's new societal needs. So, you know, there wasn't any coherent plan. My narrative looking back is I'm a little bit rebellious, maybe more than a little bit. And I tend <laughs> to ask why is things working that way and can they be done very differently, especially in industries that have built themselves really powerful oligopolies around kind of what they think that matter and over time get quite divorced from customers. So in, from my perspective, it happens in 100% of the industries. Over time, industries get removed from the customer because they just too much focus on their internal machinations and their internal bureaucracy and, you know, maybe financial metrics. So coming from the outside and saying, okay, why, why does this stuff exist like this at all? Or even what, what, you know, why do we need it? 
asking those kind of sobering questions is is exciting. And then just the uncharted territory of this is, you know, kind of the off beast versus, you know, the, the beaten track is something I genuinely love. I relish. Yeah. And one of the interesting commonalities between some of the companies that you've founded is that they they aren't the first player in the market, but they often end up being the dominant player. And you said something interesting about staying close to the customer and that's sort of how you've thought of being able to win in places where maybe you aren't the first mover or the first one to do something. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about staying close to the customer, whether it be at Wix or Vroom or K-Health? I think for me, when I think about the companies I was involved, I don't tend to define them narrowly. I tend to think about how can they be at their best, at their broadest, you know, what can they do and where do their source of, you know, market power come from? And it tends not to be straightforward, but it tends to leading to play a different game. So there were 50, you're right, and if I take Wix, there were 50 website builders before. Wix never thought itself as a website builder per se. It was clearly a major application. It's still a major application, but it's all the other things that people need. They need to interact with their customers. They need to manage their inventory and their money. Uh, They want to do marketing, uh, CRM. They want to be able to modify their uh, interactions with all these different stakeholders. Uh, That's more like a small business operating system rather than just a website. And so maybe we were number 50 on the list of website, but in terms of our approach, we took a broader approach. I also, because I'm not always confident that marketing will win, or in fact, I never think that it's about marketing. I try and work with teams that are very technology and very product oriented. They're really, really deep and push the boundaries on what can be done from a technology and product. And in most cases, that is what matters. And usually you can put yourself, if you let yourself, you can push yourself ready, ready far, which gives you a big marketing edge with customers. No, that makes sense. Sorry for the jump around there, but you know, th- those, those be the things. You know, the, the other thing is, it's really a lot of the way I think is, how would I want as a customer to be treated in terms of customer empowerment? So as a small business, if you ever need to go through consultants, brokers, whatever, outside, outsourced help, to do something, it's always going to be a pain in the butt, right? Because now I want to design a website. Now it's going to take weeks and I have these people and they're doing a process. I'm paying tens of thousands of dollars. But the view of the founders of Wix, which is why I'm excited about it, that was, no, they can. you can take control of your creative process and do it yourself. You can design a website. We'll help you. We can give the tele- technology that abstracts. With buying a car, for me, is there is this auction information called Mannheim Auction, which has all information about all the cars buying and selling. This is what dealers use, but customers are exposed to that. And with K as well, doctors have a lot of access to, to medical data. We'll probably speak about it more. Not enough in my eyes, but customers don't have any access to data, not any reliable, trustworthy data. So a lot of these things is giving people a lot of empowerment, creating a lot of value and sharing the value with them as you grow the business. No, I think that's a great transition into Wix because I've heard you talk about it in previous interviews and I've heard you talk a little bit about your experience with your father's AFib and how that inspired a lot of what K-Health has become. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that experience and also maybe your experience seeing the gatekeepers of information in medicine and how that frustration sort of led to the founding of K-Health? 
Kay didn't have a business plan or a business model when we got started. It was out of a bet that we can teach a machine the language of medicine. What I mean by that is we can translate all these different, very, very specific types of clinical contexts, of medical contexts, into something that non-doctors can understand. Just think about it. You go to a doctor and you used to it as a kid. They have a stethoscope, the white gown. They have the severe look. They're talking about stuff that's potentially really important, but also potentially scary. And you go there as a kid and you're always a kid there. Even your parents are like kids there. And even when you grow up and you're super successful, the doctor knows everything. You know nothing. Your alternative is, is Dr. Google, which is entirely unhelpful, right? Um, so side bracket, Dr. Google is unhelpful for people. It's irrelevant to see a lot of random information that is often scary. It, it doesn't help you. It doesn't build confidence. You, it's not a good starting point, right? And so it felt really paternalistic to me. And the more I dug in and looked into it, the more it felt like the 50s. That means, oh, you know nothing. Here's a very astute professional. They've studied for many years. They're erudite. They know all these different things. And let's keep the equation that way. So if you don't like, if I didn't like uh, car dealers having all the control on the car pricing and I have no control, I certainly didn't want, when it comes to my health, the most important thing, not to have any ability to um, access information. So that's how we started. And there were many symptom checkers out there and people compared us and IBM was doing Watson and they claimed they were doing some AI doctor, and, you know, they ran ads in Fortune and Forbes. So it must be true, you know, and all these different things. Step number one is to convince us, us we, could, we could actually build an information system, an information layer that can talk to you around your health in a way that's dramatically more accurate and, takes into account, you know, medical context. So that was kind of the general view, even before we started, even before we got access to any data, but that was kind of the, the premise. How do I give you control? And how do I give you the ability before you go to the doctor, at the doctor, after the doctor, to, to give you that second opinion? In fact, before we called the company K, we called the 2.0 for second opinion. That was project 2.0. And how do we build this magical second opinion right now online from wherever I am for free. Yeah. And I can say I used the product this past week just to play around with it. And I, I think one of the things that at least gave me a lot of trust in that symptom checker was it said there were 800,000 patients like me with those similar symptoms. And then it gave me sort of a, a chart of how other those patients were treated and a chart of what those patients' diagnoses were. And I think having those percentages and seeing the numbers, at least from my standpoint, gave me a lot of trust. Um, so, so how do you think about creating that experience to build trust in your symptom checker for these consumers? Look, I'm really glad you like that. And Kay is building a data-driven medicine. In order to have data-driven, I want to expose that data to both doctor, if a doctor is seeing the patient, or to you, the patient, which I prefer to call a user or consumer. And that kind of information, by the way, your doctor does not have. Your doctor has no ability to compare you to 100,000 people like you in this very specific context. The doctor has their encyclopedic knowledge and they've got references. So that kind of information that internally we call information revolution, giving people this deep understanding of who I'm comparing you to, these dynamic clusters of relevant audiences that are what we call people like me, 
is something that outside of kind of specific areas and specialty care doesn't exist. When you go to a doctor and they're typing on, you're going to the family doctor, primary care physician, urgent care, all these different, and they're typing on their computer, they're not pulling out some magical data set that compares, you know, Tim, let's assume you're 28 and to other 28 year old males with your specific medical background. And again, your specific contexts, you know, around this. And bear in mind, again, I want to, Medicine is a really, really tough profession. A doctor in a matter of minutes with a limited amount of information, just think of primary care, um, needs to be able to decide, like, is this headache, mastitis, migraine, is it attention headache? Maybe it's Lyme disease. Maybe they should send you to test Lyme disease. Maybe it's some kind of other infection. Maybe it's, God forbid, you know, some horrible uh, condition like, you know, meningitis, which means, urgent, you know, kind of emergent condition that you, you need to go to ER. You, you're kind of paying the doctor for the rule out. You're paying the doctor to rule out. Why do you feel good after going to the doctor? If you say you complain about a headache and you get a prescription for, say, sinusitis, because a great physician will also rule out all the other stuff with limited information, because not everybody's going to be sent to the ER to do EKG. Not everybody's going to be sent to do a lab test or, or any kind of other test. And, and this is where it's not a perfect system. The world's not perfect. Maybe the symptoms haven't appeared yet. Maybe they haven't presented themselves. There's all these intricacies that go into this that matter a lot. And, and in order to build a system that will try and emulate those capabilities, you need to have that degree of granularity and sensitivity, but also understand kind of what you're trying to, to resolve. One of the tensions so, with this is to have that degree of granularity, you also need a tremendous amount of data. And I know KL's sort of first big break came when you got access to the anonymized longitudinal data set through an Israeli HMO. And I think that was with 2 million individuals. But I think yeah. when I was going through the symptom checker, I mean, 800,000 patients like me, that's, you must have a lot more data now. So can you talk a little bit about what the product first looked like with that initial data set and then how you thought about getting more data to continue to train the symptom checker and uh, the broader product? So just to give you a sense of our Maccabi HMO data, Maccabi took a bet on us early on and licensed us a data set. Um, we built the entire stack there from an anonymizing the data subject to their approval and to the whole ETL and normalizing the data and starting to work on that. So I owe them a lot because they, they, they took a big bet on us by, you know, enable it. But it wasn't 2 million people. It was 2 million people over 20 years. And people rarely switched out. So we got 2 wow. billion events. So we got hundreds of millions of medical charts. And many of them were super relevant. They were, you know, we focus on the first diagnostic visit. That's where we started. So acute or urgent care and the first diagnostic visit. But this HMO had these 2 million people and everything they did in healthcare was in a single EMR. There was no claims and billing information. We just used the direct diagnostic and treatment reporting. And we could see what happened to the patient over time. So we got over half a billion prescriptions, over a billion lab results, two million hospitalizations. We got a ton of data. And then we could also tie it into specific people and look what happened over time. So first of all, that, that, you know, that, you know, that was significant. But nobody believed us. Nobody believed us that you can take unstructured doc doctor's note. Bear in mind that the doctors didn't write a doctor's note five years ago in order for some company to come and build a predictive algorithm around the data. They just captured information for workflow, for payments, for, of course, for, for clinical management, you know, so 
And they wrote in an unstructured doctor's note, just like the, you know, the example I described to you earlier, uh, with typos, with whatever they did. But we did have the benefit of hindsight. We could look at outcome data. We could look at a lot of relevant stuff. The second step is our own users, because we've done, we built not only K, this information layer, um, you call it symptom checker. I don't love the word symptom checker because it, it feels wrong. Um, we built an ability for you to engage with you around your, your health and verse with you around your health. And we also built a services layer that people call you know, telemedicine or tele, telehealth or whatever. But I'm just looking at it as a closed loop data. People come in with information. They can use our, our app for free. And then they can decide, okay, I actually I have a headache. Okay, thinks it might be migraine or sinusitis. Maybe I think it's something else. You know, whatever it is, I can go to a doctor, a traditional uh, primary care, urgent care, or I can go to, um, or I can go to a doctor on K twenty four seven on our platform. But that allows us to get a closed loop because now K talks to you around your health, and now a doctor does whatever the doctor decides to do. The doctor sees the information K collected, but the doctor also makes. Of course, their own diagnosis and decision. K doesn't diagnose and, 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 and treat you, and treat you. And so we have a lot of data from our own users. And, and that's the main thoughts. In addition, we license um, Mayo's data in order to complement it with kind of deeper hospital and, and kind of chronic comorbidity type data. Our classifier takes all the data that it has available and based on, on that is trying to figure out what's the next best question to ask you in real time, right? A human doctor will probably focus on three or four different things and narrow their focus. K will start by considering everything and, and using you know, mathematical and statistical models to try and figure out what you have, but also when to stop asking questions, right? Because there's always another question, but when, when, when is the answer not gonna matter? So that was, we started with, with Bayesian math and, 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 and got into neural networks. Uh, but we have different classifiers that do different things because they're different tasks, different you know, jobs to solve. The ontology or really what we've evolved to is, is really a language model, a semantic model, is the ability to understand the evolving world, you know, world of medicine, both for dynamic diseases and for, for personalization for very specific things. So if men and women, you know, there's there was a big research report and men and women describe symptoms leading up to heart a little bit differently. So maybe you ask them differently, or maybe you take their answers a little bit differently. 60-year-olds and 20-year-olds probably speak a little bit, it's called slang, um, but they certainly, I doubt 60-year-olds and 20-year-olds speak the same, right? Every one of us probably speaks a little bit differently. Uh, people in Texas versus might use slightly different terminology. So the idea is to build systems that, that are highly personalized to us specifically over time and baseline based on us. And then again, a similar uh, set of information. Uh, when I pointed out in the beginning that K was created in order to teach a machine the language of medicine in order to help us engage us around our health, that's exactly that. K not only understands specific words like cough or cold or headache or diabetes, K, K understands it in the context of a sentence and a paragraph and a medical context. And that creates new capabilities because if there is a new disease, in some random city in China that is acts like pneumonia and people are um, infecting each other at a very high rate and it leads to a really high level of death, 
that might be completely new information to the planet, the geography, the type of symptoms, the, the way it, it spreads, et cetera, et cetera. So imagine that kind of new disease coming up next. You don't need to wait for portable outcomes to CDC. You don't need to wait for doctors to record it. You can capture that kind of information in, in a dynamic system like us. But also the nuances are very specific. Medicine is highly manual, so different doctors learn different and practice what they learned and hopefully even get better over time. But there is a claim that in 10 to 15 years for, for new medical information to disseminate through health system, which is a travesty in my mind. You know, why not 10 months or 10 days or 10 minutes, right? Why not make it as soon as possible, you know, to, to everybody? And the answer is, well, you need to make sure the information is valid and, 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 you, and you, you need a lot of data and you, and you need people to want to do that. But clearly there's a room to take 10 years and shorten it by 99% in terms of new information. So just think of even conditions that are, you know, people treat them, whether it's influenza or diabetes, these things. Different people with different, say, medical backgrounds might react differently to different lifestyle suggestions or, or different medications. And, and that's this big, big void that exists today where it's really tough to collect that kind of ongoing information. Remember the Framingham study in the 50s in Framingham, Massachusetts, this amazing ability they spoke to thousands of people or even more collected all this detail information about people's lifestyle is it sedentary looked at their cholesterol smoking habits etc and connected it to heart conditions heart attack, strokes etc and that's the basis for for modern cardiology but imagine doing it for all the conditions in the world big or small chronic acute and then segmenting it in a much more detailed manner so building a system that enga engages that doesn't sound to me like a symptom checker or telemedicine. No, that's a, I was just about to say, it's a, it's a much broader vision. So can we talk about where you are right now and then get to how we're going to get to that vision? So right now, as you said, there's sort of that information layer, which is the data set you have, the analytics on top of it that allow people to interact with that in information. And then you have the services layer, which is the telehealth, and there's various ways that, that people can engage with that. So you started in urgent care, you've expanded to primary care, mental health, pediatrics. How did you decide on these specialties and this service set, and where do you go from there? Well, in the beginning, to prove that it worked, we wanted to start with something where the outcome is you know, days and weeks as opposed to many years. And we wanted to start with something that was easier for us to do with an initial data set, which is that first diagnostic visit. My head hurts, my stomach hurts, I've got a rash. I'm afraid of COVID, I'm afraid of heart conditions. And we wanted to build a system that allow people to engage right now, 24 seven, with information around your health, around all these kind of acute issues, right? And that's a high intense setting and we were successful to bring in a lot of users into that. But if you think about what people need is they don't only wanna manage acute uh, conditions, they also wanna manage chronic conditions such as thyroid, uh, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, you know, all, all these different things that people, that people want to manage, ideally reverse, but, you know, make sure they manage it well. And uh, allergies, asthma, COPD, et cetera. And then people want to avoid all these different things, including cancer, heart, you know, all these different things. So we want to be your doctor. So if we want to be your doctor, we, we, we need to understand broadly all these aspects of medicines. I'd love to talk about that cost piece, the expensive, because I think one of the differentiators of K-Health and how I first heard about it, frankly, 
is that you guys were offering offering ridiculously low visits. I think it was right now, I think it's $23 for a visit, which is coming in well below a lot of the competition in terms of telehealth. Um, I know this is sort of broader than just a telehealth platform. So I'd love to talk just a little bit more broadly about the unit economics and how you think about labor productivity specifically among the providers that are seeing uh, users. Um, so what are the sort of KPIs that you look at in terms of productivity? How do you, how are you able to offer such competitive prices? So let's go to a clinic together. Let's walk into a clinic right now. Just think pre-COVID, you come in with uh, flu-like symptoms, you've got this low-grade fever, you've got this malaise, you're sneezing. Maybe you have a trip in a couple of days, so you want to make sure you, you've seen by a doctor. You go in, you sneeze on everybody, now you've made everybody feel <laughs> you have. And um, you probably interact with three or four people around billing, administration, you're waiting. Uh, then they take your weight, irrelevant probably to why you're there, unless you gained a lot of weight or lost a lot of weight. And you also have your weight taken at some random time of the day was closed. Um, you know, so I'm sure you can take back to the paternalistic aspect. You can take your weight much better than, and you don't need to pay somebody to take that your weight, right? But then you usually you have some kind of nurse physician or nurse um, ask you some questions. Maybe you fill in a bunch of forms on paper. Um, that always gets lost. They keep on asking you the same questions. And then hopefully you see a doctor, not always depending on the setting. You know, you're seeing a doctor and, and you have this low-grade fever. Doctor asks you questions. Doctors probably, if they're a physician, let's assume they are a great physician. They're ruling out anything that, that is potentially immediate or cause for alarm right now. So they think it might be a viral infection, maybe a bacterial infection, okay? But they haven't done your lab because you walk into the clinic and you're going away in, in a day or two. So, you know, they might say just, you know, rest at home, drink plenty of fluids, watch Netflix, and a day or two, if you're not feeling better, you know, come back because, you know, they can't, they're not going to call you, right? There's no follow-up, they can't call you. But while you're there, really, you're trying to rule out, in this case, again, pre, so we're in 2019, right? You're trying to rule out this is influenza becomes pneumonia, bronchitis, some kind of upper respiratory infection that could be significant, these things can be dangerous. You, you want to be careful, especially if people have got, you know, if they're fragile, if, if their house is fragile. So that is existing doctor visit. That costs typically $120 to $150. Most of that is not health, it's health care. Taking your weights, a bunch of billing and paperwork, manual paperwork, repetitive questions. I'm not even talking about the friction of, Booking an appointment, trying to get in. So it's eliminating a lot of redundancy, taking a lot of a lot of the admin cost, or at least centralizing it, it sounds like, or doing it in a more scalable way with technology. But I mean, even still, relative to other telehealth companies, K-Health comes in quite low. Well, they, they're not using automation. Bear in mind, again, I described to you the whole process of engaging with you in a conversation around your health. That's quite a specific information. The information captured and served it to a doctor. The doctor might have an, one question, no questions, or a million questions. That's up to the doctor to decide. But that is automation, right? How does Amazon, how does Google deliver that super relevant query at a cost that, you know, they can afford? Because they, they don't have a thousand people behind the scenes looking out their trip <laughs> to Fiji or your favorite restaurant in New York. Uh, how can Amazon do that? Because at scale and at productivity, 
when you have doctors focusing just on the important stuff in medicine, judgment, not collecting information that's basic. Why you hear my head hurts? Where does it hurt on the right side? What, what medications are you taking? If a machine can do it on the cloud right now, and by the way, patiently, our machine never had a long day. It never wants to go home. <laughs> it, it, you know, our machine isn't human. Humans, you know, are not, are not perfect either. Doctors are human. And so being able to do it for a very, very low cost on the cloud, that's the magic of, of technology. If I can build that conversation intelligently, engage with you and collect information, then I've collected from your information. I can also compare it to previous information I have with you. Maybe I overlay it with your electronic medical record, maybe not. But now I'm serving up to the doctor the ability to make decision rather than collecting basic information. Have you more information the doctor wants to collect? And there might be settings that a doctor says, okay, I'm not sure I, I, this person needs to do an EKG. I need to send them to the ER. That, that happens as well, right? We can abolish diseases. But nothing compares in the way we work to do the other way, not in terms of access, not in terms of the ability to collect information and including a lot of rule out information and not skimp on it, not in terms of allowing our doctors to make decisions in a much more focused manner. So why should I take some random price? And by the way, I know many physicians and we employ many physicians. These, these are fantastic people. But the fact that healthcare costs a lot hasn't enriched doctors. It just has built a system that has all this big bureaucracy. I think I'm Absolutely. not a wealthy doctor. I know a lot of wealthy dentists, or at least some. <laughs> doctors, doctors work really hard. They studied really hard. They've got this big medical debt. And, you know, it's a system that's just incredibly, incredibly manual that was built for a different era for a different need. Yeah. And so dentists don't listen to, to this podcast. Um, but, but, but you, yeah, you mentioned- yeah, I'm sure dentists have their own issues, but I know nothing about, about it. So. We're not doing teledentistry yet. Um, but let's talk a little bit about employing physicians because it, it's an interesting decision that you guys have made. So how do you think and why did you choose to direct employ your physicians? And as you think about productivity, how do you think about incentivizing productivity among physicians? in this services layer? Oh, you're asking me all these tough questions. Um, uh, <laughs> I need you can always coffee. plead the fifth. It's okay. Um, no, it's, it's, no, these are, <laughs> I, I had nothing to, nothing to hide. It's just like, this is, this is good. You, you can become a VC, but, um, <laughs> but I've always not been successful by taking something that's groundbreaking and makes a big difference and selling it to somebody else. Now I need to have this whole sales team to sell it. Now they, they're acting like they're doing me a favor and they get to keep most of the profit. I'd rather, if, if there's value to be created here between the users and me, I want to keep it there. And I, I'd rather employ doctors, pay them a salary and let, you know, let them work on our system rather than go knock on doors and convince health systems and doctors to be part of that. Some of them come to us occasionally and want to work with us. But again, we're not looking to integrate to other systems. We, we want to be careful. We, we have a very close partnership with, with Anthem Blue Cross, and we have a deep integration of primary care into their main app, and we have an SDK there. But th that's quite specific for things that are just, you know, massive channels and massive opportunities for people who get what, you know, what, what we're all about. Aside from that, I'd rather be careful. So... You know, we employ many hundreds of, of physicians and nurses, and we're going to hire many more. And um, I, we want to build it from the ground up in a way that people, you know, that physicians can flourish in the way they can get data that's helpful to them and they can understand and, and use it in the way they can focus on medicine. That's what doctors say. I want to focus on medicine, not on admin. Yeah. Um, so, so 
it's easier to say, okay, well, here's a piece of software. I'm just going to go sell it. I, I just think the outcome is much smaller. And if you think about Wix, Wix didn't take its um, groundbreaking editor and kind of uh, drag and drop WYSIWYG systems and license it to, to hosting companies. It could have, but it said, no, it's going to provide you the full service. It drum wouldn't say, oh, we, we found a way to buy and sell cars from customers online. Uh, let me just license it to car dealers. No, we built our own system. We became our own retailer. You have to control the experience. I think it's really tough not to. There's in yeah. rare situations you can take true IP, ARM does it, semiconductors sometimes do it, although I don't think the comparison there is, is accurate. It's easier to build you know, full stack business systems. Amazon's one, DoorDash is one, Peloton's one, you know, and so we're, we're looking to build this full-blown, you know, capability and build an experience of better. Because bear in mind, people not only need to know if their headache is this or that and get certain treatments. Sometimes the doctor wants to refer them to lab. We send many people every day to labs. We get the results back. You know, we want to control that experience. We want to make yeah. sure people are, are getting health, not paying for stuff that they don't need, that they're not getting over-tested, you know. Now, we can't do all of that in one day or one year. It'll take a decade or even two. But you have to control the experience. And I highly recommend for any of you, you and any, anybody at Wharton and people who are starting or thinking about starting a business and how to do that is you need to think full stack. Yes, you need more capital. You need different types of expertise around the table. But it's just way more rewarding. So you mentioned that partnership with Anth and I, and I would love to turn to that because you're also the CEO of Hydrogen Health, um, mm -hmm. which is a collaboration between K, Anthem, and Blackstone um, to do, and I know you don't like digital primary care, so let's just call it a, a different kind of primary care model. Um, so yeah. Real primary care. Real primary care. Um, yeah. So you did a pilot with Anthem's fully insured, and I think really recently you announced that you're expanding it to regional insurers and, and self-insured employers. Can you talk about what worked well in the pilot and maybe what didn't work well um, and what gave you the confidence to try and scale that business? Look, we've been working with Anthem for, for a few years and Anthem's a very big, very successful insurer. And there was a meeting of the minds in terms of the opportunity here because they, they see an opportunity not only in terms of you know, cost savings for their own customers, whether they're self-insured or people that Anthem insure, self-insured being a large company for people who don't know healthcare, large companies that the the large employer pays, bears the risk and pays the, the medical bills. Whereas small businesses, typically somebody like Anthem or United will, 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 will be the insurer. We'll take, you know, we'll take the medical risk and you're just paying a premium, right? But I think Anthem recognized it's, it's about time to create a better experience from a physician kind of interaction because it helps them. Their customers are going to be happier. And they know there's a lot of waste. They just, again, where, where is the waste? Difficult to find it. So if it was obvious, if it was just people doing extreme behaviors and giving out opiates or doing kind of irrelevant surgeries or procedures, you know, that's, they can find it's easy. But all these different nuances, you're not in the room. The doctor's in the room. So they like the fact that they can provide a roadmap to better medical care at a lower cost. That's a really, really interesting combination you know, for, for, for large market. And as we started working together and we started thinking collectively together with Blackstone around the ability to build really a joint venture to focus on, on all these, all these different things that are happening in the offline world, right? Um, 
so Kay, Kay works remotely 24 seven in 48 continent in the 48 continental states, but people also need, they need labs, they need tests, they need procedures. Anthem has a lot of this information, but now they wanna be able to help people navigate through all these different things. And they wanna make sure people are getting the best care, the right type of care. So all these different elements are crucial because you might own, we, we think 90% of the time you can resolve the problems online. You might need to send somebody to a lab, but you get the results back and a, you know, a, a doctor can, can handle that remotely. But you know, five or 10% of the time people need to go in in person and that costs a lot, a lot of money, it's very scary. So there's a whole company set up to, to navigate people through that, but why not tie it into a system that's already working for you? Um, yeah. So that, that's been the nascence of that. Can't share too much about it, but as you can imagine, what matters first is can we prove we can do better medicine, higher quality medicine, more accessible medicine, which in my book is part of the definition of better. Yeah. Because if you could do it right now, even if you're affluent and you live in a big city and have access to a doctor, your doctor's not available for you right now. She just, she just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she work 24 seven. She's also human. She has breaks. So a better access, um, a completely different price point and higher quality. It's kind of the same thing we built and built right on for the consumer we're now building for the employer market. Maybe that's a good question to finish on, which is just what advice do you have to anyone who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or trying to have an impact in the healthcare system? Look, I, I became an entrepreneur, I think, at the age of 37, so about 15 years ago. It's something that I felt, again, I didn't know I was ever going to do it. But once I did it, I really enjoyed it. It's it's like getting married. You don't go, hopefully you don't go and write, okay, here's why I like him or her. And here's reasons mathematically why to get married or not. You have to feel, you need to be quite obsessed about it. Not quite, very. You need to really want to wake up in the, in the morning or on the weekend and read stuff about what you're doing. You need to love the volatility and ambiguity and challenges that it brings and the uncertainty. And you need to accept that you're, you're small, you're just starting somebody, something that nobody cares about in the beginning. There's a PR saying, nobody cares about your shitty company, except your mother <laughs> and your employees. So um, and that's the truth. You start a company, you think it's a bad thing because you thought about it for a few months or maybe many years. You need to obsess because it doesn't make sense. Most companies fail. So that's, most startups fail. So that's a sobering thought as you want to start something. I think when you read in the media, you read, oh, this company raised a lot of money and these guys, and here's my cousin that I think I'm smarter than my cousin. And he sold his company to Microsoft for $200 million. Must <laughs> do it, you know, and all the money. But please open the column, which is called companies that were shut down today, or more importantly, companies that are lame ducks and have been around for many, many years and are going nowhere column. And tell me if you want to read that column. No. You don't want to read it unless it's a spectacular failure. You don't want to read that column. So, but this that column is way bigger than the column of all these successful companies as of today, even though it looks like all these companies are successful because everybody's raising money. So it's not for the faint of heart, but you kind of need to feel that you want to do it and have that capability and then develop. It's a different mindset. It's not better or worse. It's just different from being an executive in a big company or being an investor or consultant, you know, that's helpful. So it's not for the faint of heart, but you got to love it. I think that's a good, good note to end on. Hopefully everything you do in life, all the major decisions, 
Yeah, I can get pop- married and kids, and that's also you. Hopefully, you do it because you really love it. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> well, Alon, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been an amazing sure. conversation. Thank you, Tim.